Ephesians chapter 3. I've enjoyed this book. I hope you have as well. And, and I pray that um, we continue to do so. Our text for this morning begins with the words, For this reason. Last week's text began with the words, For this reason. Verse 1, chapter 3, is what we started with last week. And, and I said, and you might remember, that in that context, it, it, it seems that what Paul is doing is he's beginning to write, and he has another thought. And he's going to write about how he prays for the, the church at Ephesus. But suddenly he goes, oh no, i got this one more thing I need to say before I do that. And, and so he had that section last week. And so when we come to this passage for this reason, we need to stop and remember what Paul has said up until this point. Remember, Paul's in prison. He's writing from prison. And it's in that context that he begins chapter 1 by unpacking all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. In a relationship with Christ, these are our blessings. And he just unpacks them. And then he finishes chapter 1 by unpacking how he prays for the the church in Ephesus. And what's fascinating is here's a man in prison, and rather than feeling sorry for himself or saying, would you please pray that I get out of prison, he's really God-focused in his prayer, amazed at what God has done, and secondly, he's overwhelmed and he's praying for others particularly the church in Ephesus. And as I read that, I go, uh, how ought I to be different in in light of that? Now, chapter 2, he then unpacks who we once were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but because of God's grace and because of the work of Christ on the cross, we are saved. And then then he begins to unpack how we are one in Christ. You might remember at the end of chapter 2, he paints three pictures. One is he speaks of us as a, as a Jew and Gentile, as a new family, or he talks about a new kingdom, or he says God is building you into a new temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's, he's the, the, the very the heart of which everything rests upon. Then the prophets and the apostles are the foundation that are connected into that cornerstone and then we are being built upon that in other words we're being built upon what the apostles and the prophets have been teaching us through the text and that building is ongoing i think it's in that context that he's about ready to pray for the church at ephesus and he begins chapter three but he goes you know what these people are going to lose heart because i'm in prison and I'm the one who started their church, and, and maybe it looks like it's all, the fa- it's all about this whole thing is going to fail. And the Apostle Paul stops and reminds him and says, you know what, I'm actually a prisoner of Jesus, not a prisoner of Nero, but a prisoner of Jesus, and I'm here on your behalf, and it's for your good, and it's by God's grace that I get to know this truth, this gospel, and it's because of God's incredible grace that I get to be a minister of this gospel. And so don't lose heart. It's a good thing that I'm in prison. 
Sometimes I think we need to stop and pause and we need to think about the Apostle Paul when he's writing. He loves these people. But he's also overwhelmed by God's grace. And that's what shapes him. In the midst of great difficulties, he's still overwhelmed by the grace of God. The gospel, the good news, is of such power, such, a, such, such a wonder, such beauty, that even in the midst of greatest stress and despair, we can be a people that are just like overwhelmed and thankful and grateful. It's in that context that Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. And what I want us to see this morning is really three stages in Paul's prayer, okay? Um, notice first off in verses 14 through well, the first half of 16 is Paul really begins to prime the pump. When I was a kid, Dad had uh, this, this, this lawn which was perfect when the guys were over for football but was way too big when it was time to mow it or water it. And in order to water this thing, I would have to get Dad's little Honda pump started. And so you had to make sure the pipe was stuck in the irrigation ditch and you had to have everything connected. And, and that was a lot of work all on, on its own. But the thing had to be primed in order for it to be pumped. So you had to pour water into it in order for it to start kicking and pulling water out of the ditch. And, and, and in some ways, maybe this is a poor example, but I think in some ways that's what's going on in Paul's prayer he's priming the pump of prayer he says i bow my knees that wasn't the typical way to pray in those days most people would stand to pray now it wasn't uncommon to get on your knees to pray we have daniel the picture of daniel three times a day he would get on his knees to pray but when Paul says, I bow my knees to pray, it's almost like he says, I'm, I'm in the presence of someone greater. I'm in the presence of a king. I'm in the presence of someone who's my authority. And I think Paul's just reminding them who we pray to. I bow my knees before the Father. He not only bows his knees before a king, but he bows his knees before a father. A father would have been an authority figure. And in that culture, that would have been seen differently than we see it today. But also, a father would have been one who provided because he loved the family. A father is one who's, there's an intimacy there. I think one of the perfect ways to describe how I under, should understand father uh, came when my time in, in university down in the States. I was in a culture that I just didn't understand. And one of the guys next door on our dorm room, back in the days of payphones, was calling. I didn't know who he was talking to, but I overheard the conversation, and I was curious. Who is he talking to? Because every other phrase that he used was, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, no, sir. And I'm like, who is this person he's talking to? And then when he finished the conversation, he says, I love you, Daddy. I was like, both of those words, sir and daddy, were foreign to me. 
My dad was my dad. I loved my dad, but I would never called him daddy. I was probably pretty young when I had last called dad daddy. And here was a grown young man in college calling his dad daddy, but also calling him sir. And I think the Apostle Paul, when he approaches God, there's this element where he would say, yes, sir, no, sir. And yet there's this element where he says, I love you, Daddy. And I think this phrase captures that. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He stops and recognizes who is this Father. Every family in heaven and on earth. Now, I think in the context there, he's talking about bigger picture families, like the family of Abraham. But also, he says, the families in heaven and on earth. I, I think the, the context and the context of the passage, context of the Ephesians, he's talking about all created beings, both angelic and on earth. Now, back in those days, uh, a name wasn't simply to differentiate between Jay and I, for example. But, but a name had more meaning than that. It usually kind of covered their character or what might their role be. And when the text, and when Paul is saying about God, about this Father, he says, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, he's saying not only did this Father create all beings, but this Father sovereignly tells them what their role will be. Now why is this all important? I think the next phrase unpacks it a little bit deeper beginning of verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, it's out of the bank account of his glory that God can answer these prayers. Excuse me if I'm telling a story that I've told before and you've heard it, but I'm going to say it again regardless. A number of years ago, we were planting a church. I was just starting out. Lynn was pregnant with, with Rebecca. Uh, financially, things were tight. I was um, delivering papers. They had to be out at 6.30 in the morning here in the city. On the weekends, I got to sleep in. They could be out by 8, but seven days a week. The afternoons, I was working a part-time job, and then the mornings and the evenings were busy with the church plant. It was a insanely stupid schedule I don't wish it on anybody and I don't think anybody should do that but that's what we were doing and because of the finances and and stuff I began to worry and probably because I was tired and, and literally what I do is I hit the pillow and I'd fall fast asleep and about 2 a.m. I'd wake up and the first thought was what if what if and I couldn't get back to sleep. I couldn't let my mind go to sleep. And I would get up and I'd begin to wander and I'd begin to pace through the house. And I was wrestling with this fear. Fear was controlling me. And so I came to a place in, and, and where, you know what, I need to get into God's Word so I can sleep. And the passage was Isaiah 41.10 that began very important to me. I memorized it and and I would get up and I'd literally open up my Bible and I'd read it and reread it and reread it. And Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, 
for I am with you. The New American says, do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And those words were a comfort to me. But those words really didn't mean a lot until I began to wrestle with, who is this God who is with me? If you're in the back alley of Chicago, you would hope that Chuck Norris, at least a younger version of Chuck Norris, is with you. Or should I say Baltimore? I just read Baltimore is the worst city in the States right now. Who is the God that was with me? And I began to look around Isaiah 41.10, and I saw chapter 40 where it talks about this God who scoops out the waters with the hollow of his hands, and, and the God who sees the nations as a drop, just a drop of sand that he puts on the scales. And I began to realize this God is incredibly powerful, incredibly good, that he, this is the God that is with me. And I think Paul in prison... He bows his knees before his authority, his yes, sir, before his father, the one who provides for him, the one who's, who's named every name, has literally he, he created all beings and given each family their role in, in this world. And it's that God who has this bank account which he can draw from, who has the ability to answer the following prayers. That's the God that Paul is praying to. So he primes the pump of prayer, but then he begins to pray in verse 16, halfway through, and he really has two requests. The first is, is he's, he's really praying for power, and secondly, he's praying for knowledge. We could just shrink him down to those two words. But notice in the second half of 16, he says that he may grant you, the church in Ephesus, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Paul's praying for these people he loves. And he's praying that, that God would give them, God the Father would give them power by the Spirit. The power that would strengthen them. Now why would they need such power? Ephesians chapter 2. Who were they formerly? They were dead in the trespasses and sins. They were ones following the prince of the power of the air. They were ones uh, that, was, that um, was followed their own desires. These were people who needed the power of the Spirit in their inner being to overcome sin. Now I think the Apostle Paul in verse 17 unpacks it a little further so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It seems like in verse 17 that what the, the writer is telling us is that, that it's through the Spirit strengthen us that Christ dwells in our hearts. The point is, though, we know from chapter 1 that Christ already dwelt within them. They were already in relationship with Christ. In verse 17, what he's actually saying is, let me explain what I just prayed. Let me illuminate it for you. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Galatians, for example, Galatians chapter 2, I think Paul helps us understand it. Verse 20. Some of you will know this by heart. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Apostle Paul is saying, God, would you, would you strengthen these people? Would you help these people to grow in their confidence and trust of your son Jesus to such an extent that in their very inner being, in their heart, in their, in their desires, in their wills, in their wants, in their wishes, that they become more and more like Christ. As we get into chapter 4, Paul's going to start unpacking what that power might look like. It's a power that enables us to be humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity. Paul recognizes that they, they, they can't change on their own. They need the Spirit of God to change them. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul recognizes that this church in Ephesus unless they become like Christ, unless they put their faith and trust with increasing measure in Christ, they won't be patient with one another. And the truth is the same for us. Yesterday, last week, I had you look around the room and said, and recognize it, that we are one flesh, we are one body, we are one family, because we're in Christ. Now, the only way we can treat each other that way is if the Spirit of God strengthens us and if our faith and our confidence in this Jesus continues to grow. And this is how Paul prays. This is how Paul prays. He prays for power, but he also, I believe, prays for knowledge. Starting at the second half of verse 17, he kind of begins that whole process where he says, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, let that phrase soak in your brain a bit. So we are not the green thumbs. Our, our family is not, give us a plant, we will kill it for you. We are really good at that. Um, when was your parents here, Lynn and May? Your parents were here in May, and, and Lynn thought, this is a great idea. She bought a couple planters and stuck them outside while they, she, they were here, and her mom would water them faithfully. And then when her mom went back to Ohio, her mom would text Lynn, water your plants. And Lynn was like, how'd you know, Mom? <laughs> well, they were kind of looking droopy this week before we took off to Spokane. And, and so kind of last minute, we put them in another pot. And we stuck them in the sun before we left. Oh, this, we didn't kill them. Like, this, this, this is a happy ending. These droopy pants, when you put them in this, this good soil where they had a little more room to grow and they had some sunlight, and we said to Jemima, would you make sure you water them? They looked great when we came home. The Apostle Paul, when he says in chapter 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. It says, this is us. 
We are planted in love. We are, we are established. We are laid on the foundation of love. What is he talking about? Chapter 1. Remember how he prays all the spiritual blessings? In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons. God, in his incredible love for us, even while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, long before that, before we did anything good or bad, what did he do? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. That's what we've been planted in. And because of that, we can grow and bear fruit and all of that good stuff. The Apostle Paul, in the midst of his prayer, he, he goes, he goes, being rooted and grounded in love, God may you, he's praying, remember, May they have the strength to comprehend with all the saints where there's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Would they know the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And the problem is Paul doesn't finish the sentence. What are we supposed to know, Paul? Some believe that Paul prays that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's power. And that's possible. We can find that in, in the book of Ephesians. It would fit the context. Some think this is an allusion back to the book of Job. And so what Paul is actually praying is that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's wisdom. Some think that the context all around it, and I tend to agree, but I won't be dogmatic, is that the Apostle Paul is saying that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. But whatever it is, or if it's all of it, that's how Paul prays. And then he prays, that we might know a second thing. In verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I cannot understand a God that before the world began, even though he knew Elroy was going to be a rebellious, no-good-for-nothing, rotten scoundrel, this, this God would love me enough to predestine to adopt me. I can't understand such love. I can't understand such wisdom. I can't understand such ability or power. But that's what he's done. And Paul says, I'm not only going to pray that you would, that you would have this power to be transformed by this Christ, but I, I pray that you may know this Christ that you can't know. You see the bigness of his prayer? Suddenly Paul's imprisonment wasn't really that big of a deal. 
I think this is why Paul is not really concerned whether he's in prison. Because something bigger in the grand scheme of eternity is going on. Yes, God cares about the sparrow and God cares about the food on my table and God cares about the water that's running inside the walls of my house that I don't know what to do with, but there's something far bigger than that. And that's what Paul prays for. That's how I ought to pray. That's how we ought to pray. Now, Paul primes the pump of prayer, and then he prays. He asks God for these two things, and then in verses 20 and 21, he concludes with praise. Now, I've heard verses 20 and 21 used in all kinds of ways, usually selfishly. But listen to this again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. I've heard colleagues use this, and quite frankly, I've probably butchered the use of this, but I've heard colleagues use this in the past where he says God uh, is praying that God would do, give them a church that is far greater than anything they've ever asked or imagined. thinking of the size of the church and the scope of the church. But that's not what Paul's praying. In the context, he's praying that these people would be so transformed by the power of the Spirit of God that they'd be be like Christ, that, that God would continue to build His temple and He would dwell among them. They are the temple, Jew and Gentile. Ethiopian and, and Dutch, as I talked to last few weeks back. This God who's capable of doing far more than we could ever imagine, capable of doing far more than Paul ever dreamed of. He never thought he'd see a day where the Jews and the Gentiles would become a new family. May God get the glory, verse 21. To Him be the glory in the church. In other words, God, he's saying, God, when when the world looks at the church in Ephesus, would you get all the glory? Would you get all the praise? Would you get all the worship? Would people be wowed? Look what you've done. It's my prayer that when, when Marta Lupe looks at what goes on in this building and beyond this building, because the church is not a building, it's the people of God. When they look at us, they'd be wowed and they go, God is amazing. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. It's because we're rooted in Christ. It's only because we're rooted in Christ. It's only because we have a relationship with Christ that we are transformed and changed. And finally, throughout all generations, not just in the first century to the church at Ephesus, but in the second century, the third century, the fourth century, all the way to the 21st century and until Jesus tarries. May the Lord get all the glory. I think the Apostle Paul, at this point in verse 20, is so overwhelmed 
with what God is doing and has done and will do. But he cannot help but conclude his prayer with praise. So Paul primes the pump. Paul prays. And then he praises God. And I ask the question to us. When you compare Paul's prayer to your prayer life, what's it look like? How ought we to pray? Father, we are a people that desperately need you, and you have graciously, kindly entered this world and crashed this world and, and became a child. walked among us, lived the perfect life that we could not live, and then graciously, Father, your Son willingly went to the cross to be butchered, to be put to death, to be murdered on our behalf. Thank you. And it's because of his work on the cross, Lord, that we now have this incredible privilege to be a family, a new kingdom, the dwelling place of you. So, Lord, thank you. And Father, I pray that you would change us, that you would grant us to be strengthened by your power through your spirit, that that we would have Christ dwell in our hearts, in our inner beings to such an extent that we would be like you. Help us to trust in this Jesus with greater and increasing confidence. And, oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to comprehend what we cannot comprehend, your love, your wisdom, and yes, your power. And Lord, may we marvel even more at what you're doing in the church than even when we stare at the mountains next door. May we be wowed that you would take us and dwell among us. Thank you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Every week.